Welcome to The Jay Martin Show. Now, my guest today is Alfonso Picacciello, who is a former money manager. Alfonso used to oversee over $2 billion, but today he just manages his own cash and provides education for investors and does a very good job given his track record and experience in the market. Now, today we went all over the map from portfolio construction, uh, any wild speculations he's looking at to conservative bets in the market. We covered a handful of, full of geopolitical topics, the energy sector, the gold sector, the equity sector, his viewpoint on inflation, and much, much more. Alfonso is super smart, new personality on the scene in macro finance as of about a year ago, and I really enjoyed finally getting him here on the show. So I hope you enjoy this conversation and learn as much as I did. I'm definitely going to be having Alfonso back. So as always, uh, there's a pinned comment or sorry, a link in the show notes where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. I write an author a letter every Sunday. I absolutely love doing it. I share my biggest takeaways from conversations just like this and plenty others, any action items I might be taking in the market or anywhere else in my life and uh, just share my perspective on current events. I love authoring it. It's free and I'd love to have you subscribe and join the team. You can do so with that link in the show notes. Here is Alfonso Picacello. Enjoy. Here I am with Alfonso Picacello. Alfonso, how are you? Welcome to the show. Hey, Jay. Such a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm good. And you? I'm good, man. I'm really good. Excited to have you on. Excited to, to chat and go a handful of different directions. But uh, first, so that my audience can get to know you a little bit and get a bit of context into how you think. Can I start with this question, Alf? If I were to hand you, you know, your backgrounds in money management, I'm not holding you to anything here, but if I were to hand you a million dollars today and say, look, my time horizon is 10 years. Your only goal with this is to retain my purchasing power of this wealth. What do you do? Where do you go? Wow, with your investment of 10 year, 10 year horizon. Okay, Jay, then I'm going to say you need to have um, money invested in, uh, in different products. You can't have all, all in one. That's pretty obvious. So I would say with 10 years, you're looking at companies that are able to generate decent free cash flows and you're not buying them at ridiculous valuations, right? So I look ahead. And I see a world which is um, going towards more and more technology. And this is not going to go away. I see a world of um, declining demographics in developed worlds across the world, from China to US to Europe. You can't really avoid that. And therefore, I see companies with pricing power, with good technology set up behind them that should be able to continue to thrive. So we are not talking about the entire Nasdaq index, but we're talking especially about the good quality tech names out there. I would think you need to be allocated to those. And obviously you need to have some counterbalances as well in your portfolio, but mostly I would tend to keep allocating over the long term towards these companies. I love that. I find that to be quite an optimistic take on the direction of the United States. Would you interpret it that way? Is that, would you well, agree with that? I mean, not necessarily. The, the, the point I want to make is that in a world where the structural drivers behind growth, which are population growth, effectively the labor force growth and the productivity of labor force and capital. If you look at these drivers, Jay, in the US, they are not pointing to a, an extremely rosy picture ahead. The labor force growth is likely to be basically zero because the population is aging. So we get more people who are, that are retiring, but we are not making enough kids to have this substitution effect that keeps the labor force growing. Like we had in the 80s, we don't have that now, 
right? So you see that. So the amount of people who are actively contributing to economic growth is going to basically be flat year over year. That's not going to grow. That's not where your structural growth is going to come from. Is it going to come from, pro from productivity? Well, on an overall aggregate level in the economy, if you look at capital productivity and labor productivity, you're pretty stable, round about, you know, one and a half percent year on year growth. You become a little bit more productive year after year. But if you're uh, your gains, let's say, from a growth perspective, aren't coming from the labor supply force, from the, the capital intensive side of the economy, the only way to generate a good long-term return prospect comes from companies that have pricing power and ability to leverage on technology. That's where, over the medium term, you are likely to find good returns. Obviously, returns are also driven by entry levels. So at which valuations are you buying these companies is also extremely important. You asked me about 10 years. So mm. over 10 years, you can debate that there is a, a slightly lesser impact of the initial valuations you buy the companies that as long as they keep delivering earnings, if you would ask me over the next year or two, my answer would be slightly different. But over a longer time frame, I think the answer remains that. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. Now, give us a bit of perspective into your portfolio, Alf. Uh, where do you have your wealth stored and what's your structure look like? Yeah. So right now, um, I have been basically, and I keep being very defensive on a medium-term perspective. And for medium-term, I tend to identify that with a six to 12 months horizon, let's say. So at least over the next year, Jay, with the objective in mind to preserve your purchasing power, and let's define that for a second, it's not about generating returns that are 10 or 20 or 30% above the inflation rate. The objective should normally be from an investor perspective to make sure that its purchasing power is preserved, which means its real return is positive, zero or positive with its investment portfolio. And also that the drawdowns and the volatility are not big enough to lead to stupid mistakes. For instance, you know, because the, the, the realized volatility is too big, you tend to just panic sell and hit the sell button, right? You want to avoid that. With that in mind, uh, starting in December, but still right now, the asset allocation I have is very defensive. So it's been a lot of dollar cash, mm. which doesn't sound very uh, palatable, but actually it defends, it protects, it acts like a, a defender towards your portfolio in moments where you have an economic growth that is clearly slowing down and you have uh, policymakers who are tightening all over the place, both from a fiscal perspective and the monetary perspective. In that situation, it is very hard to find returns well, we are witnessing it right now over the first seven months of the year. Basically, no asset class has delivered decent returns adjusted for inflation, right? Most of them are negative. And cash tends to be one of the least negative in this environment. Lately, I've started to allocate money to bonds. So I've bought again long-term US bonds, 10 to 30 year mostly. And I can elaborate on that, but in, in a nutshell, Jay, it is because the Federal Reserve has one main task right now, which is to kill inflation literally to kill inflation. In order to do that, they are likely to engineer and to actually enhance a recession, which would have already been there mostly because of the fiscal slowdown and the fiscal drag. They will make it probably worse in magnitude and in, uh, in the timeline effectively. And as they tighten into a recession, what happens is that the long end part of the bond, uh, of bonds basically, so the, the, the long end bond yields, tend to drop because they reflect long-end perspective for growth and inflation. And as you have a recession, it's going to obviously weaken the labor market. It's going to weaken companies, et cetera. You are likely to have the Federal Reserve have to cut rates back again. And this gets reflected in lower bond yields. 
Okay. The other thing I love about cash, and you touched on this, but it gives you the optionality, right, to capitalize when you see those opportunities. And we're so frequently, I find, as retail investors, trapped in this cycle of putting cash to work, right? Put your cash to work. And sitting on cash is often frowned upon, which I've never, well, no, I understand it. But I think I've been fortunate to have mentors who have guided me against that and said cash is actually should be your favorite asset because it gives you, if nothing else, the confidence to chase those high-risk speculations when they appear, which I always appreciate it. Now, do you think the Fed is at risk of over-tightening and, and um anticipating inflation to run a bit hotter than it might? Like, is it possible we've already seen peak inflation and things might actually maintain or temper down from here, yet the Fed will run away with the tightening policy and overdo it? So JD, the short answer is yes. I do think they're running this risk right now. Okay. Do I think they have an alternative? No, I don't. Because from a policymaking perspective, basically until seven months ago, I was running a, a large investment portfolio for a bank. So I had the chance, I was lucky enough to meet these policymakers actually uh, behind closed doors as well in meetings, right? And when you talk to them, prime ministers, central bankers, and you ask them, what do they want, Jay? What do they really want is to make sure that the status quo, their mandate that they have is actually preserved. They don't like situations that are uncomfortable. And right now we are exactly in a very uncomfortable situation where the central bank inflation target is 2%, around about 2%. And we have realized inflation at 9% in the US, 7% in Europe, way above 2% in basically every country in the world. When the band, let's say the error band becomes too big, they tend to react very, violent, very violently. And why? Because they are losing control. They really do not like losing control. They want to preserve the status quo. So the Federal Reserve has no choice right now than to convince market participants and consumers as well that they will bring things under control. And as they do that, they, they will have to yeah, well, be very tight. So the definition is to basically bring interest rates above the level of neutral interest rates. Imagine if this neutral interest rate would be a rate at which the economy runs at its potential, nothing cools down, nothing overeats. If you want the economy to cool down and inflation to cool down as well, you have to bring interest rates above the level of neutral. Obviously, there is no you know, realistic measure or observed measure for what is a neutral interest rate. So the Fed will keep hiking, Jay. They will keep hiking and reducing the balance sheet until they literally see progress on their target. The problem is that inflation is the most lagging economic indicator out there. You right. have forward-looking indicators, you have coincident indicators, and you have lagging indicators. They're looking at one of the most lagging indicators out there, which is inflationary pressures. They tend to abate late in the cycle when the damage has been done on forward-looking and on coincident indicators, only then inflation slows down. They are targeting the thing that will slow down the least, which means, again, and you are right, that they are very likely to over-tighten against what's necessary. And we are going to feel it, I guess, and you're seeing that already in bond curves, which are inverted. So the spread between a 10-year government bond in the US, a 10-year treasury, and a two-year treasury actually is negative. 10-year treasury yields are yielding less than two-year treasury yields, because these two-year treasury yields are reflecting a very tight Federal Reserve, and the 10-year treasury yield is instead reflecting what comes eight years after that, which is obviously a very sharp economic slowdown, as the Federal Reserve will have to over-tighten to bring inflation down. Interesting. And so, therefore, would you predict that by 2024, or maybe sooner, you know, we're dropping rates and actually gravitating back towards zero interest rates again? Would you so, entertain that as a possibility? Yes, I do. 
So um, Jade, the situation is investing is mostly about probabilities and people are looking for certainties, but in reality, none of us knows what that. the final outcome is going to be. And as an investor, I learned it's all about probability distribution. So right now, if I look in the options and in the derivatives market, I see that the probability the Federal Reserve has to go back to rates at zero because there has been a sharp recession and therefore, you know, inflation always goes down in recessions, Jay. Um, I'm going to share the screen for people who are listening at, uh, to this in, in the podcast version. I'm going to try and elaborate as well. Sure. Into what, what exactly am I, am I showing here? I actually run a research uh, of late where I, can you see, can you see? Can you yeah, see we, we got it here. Yep. Yep. Very good. So what I did is I looked into 100 years of history of US recessions, Jay. And I looked at every time that we entered the recession where inflation was above 3% at the same time. So let's say right now we're entering a recession and we do have inflation above 3%. This period would qualify. I looked back at 100 years and checked every single time this happened in the US. I found 11 instances from 1923 to 2023. They are marked in white. The gray ones are periods where the recession was hitting, but inflation was already pretty low. So it doesn't qualify for the sample. There are 11 cases in which we entered the recession. Inflation was at 3%. And in 11 out of 11 cases, 100% hit rate, a recession was always able to slow inflation down. By how much? A whopping 7% peak to trough change in inflation. And it took on average 16 months for inflation to slow from the peak to 2%, which is a central bank target. Right. So effectively right now, you're looking at a situation in which you could imagine that if we are going towards a recession, there is nothing to be happy about that. But at least history says that the recession will be more than enough to slow inflation down from 9%, seven percentage points all the way down to 2%. And I'm not saying the Fed wants a recession, they want a soft landing instead. But unfortunately, because of the size and the magnitude and the composition of these inflationary pressures and the amount of effort they need to do to bring it down, probably a recession is what's needed to achieve that. Okay. Okay. Thanks for sharing this. Now, there's. I'll just shout out at the bottom here, it says the macrocompass.substack.com. That's where you can find your newsletter. Is that correct, Alf? That is correct. Okay. Sorry, I, uh, I actually made a, made a mistake. Stop sharing the screen. Yes, uh, that is one of the analysis around in my newsletter. It's called okay. Macrocom. It's free if people want to check it out. Awesome, awesome. Okay. Um, now then, when you when you look at your portfolio right now, when you look at the macro environment, uh, when you look at Fed policy, and you're you're you know you're trying your best to predict the future on behalf of your portfolio, what concerns you the most right now, Alf? Where are you? Where are you nervous? Where do you think things could go really south? Where are people overexposed right now? Mm, so let me let me talk about the real estate market. I think we need to have a chat about that. Okay, yeah, yeah let's go there. First thing that goes to my mind and why Jade goes immediately uh, top of my head, it's because when you ask me about risks, I need to look at um, what are the, the basically the indicators I track telling me against what is the average consensus out there. The average okay. consensus about the real estate market is that it can never break, it's rock solid, and it's going to continue delivering solid returns. That's both because of anecdotal evidence, but also if you ask analysts on Wall Street, you'll see that they expect house prices to increase still by 10% year on year, this year in the US and also in other jurisdictions. You have seen some cracks appearing in, uh, in markets like Canada and Australia, for example, here and there a little bit. 
But if you look at the US and Europe, the consensus is still very, very positive. If I look at that consensus against what I see potentially happening in the real estate market, I see a large divergence that is worth paying attention to. So this chart for people listening on a podcast version uh, basically shows the market capitalization of different asset classes throughout the world. And I'm going to just read them one by one. So one would think that the equity market is by far the biggest market class in the asset class in the world. And the answer is that it isn't. It is very big. It's over $100 trillion in market capitalization, but it is not the biggest. Then you're going to say, okay, Alf, then the biggest must be the bond market. Well, the bond market is bigger than the equity market. It's $124 trillion market cap against 110 for equities. So it is bigger, but it is not the biggest. Is it gold? Oh, gold is the $12 trillion market. It's actually the real estate market. It's gigantic, guys. If I sum the residential real estate market, the commercial real estate market and agricultural land, I reach over $300 trillion. So it is three times as big as the global equity market, and it is bigger than the equity, bonds, and gold market gold market combined together. This is the size we're talking about, Jay. It's absolutely huge. And the, the housing market is so big, first of all, because obviously it um, accommodates a, a paramount important necessity of human beings, so living somewhere, but also because it's a very leveraged market. 87% of US um, house purchases happen to be backed by a mortgage. Therefore, okay. mortgage rates... Sorry, Jay, go ahead. Oh, just, just to... I'm going to try to play devil's advocate here. So you, you mentioned one thing, right? It's it's maybe in proportion to necessity. People don't need equities, debt, gold, but they do need residence. They do need shelter. Businesses do need uh, to be domiciled somewhere, typically in a building of some kind. Agriculture, land, I mean, indisputable. Food is important, right? And so that those three buckets would eat up half, right, of um, of this chart alone does kind of make sense. Could you also argue that there's more utility uh, in the real estate market than there is in speculative equities, gold, et cetera? What do you think about that? In principle, you're completely right, Jay. So you expressed better what I wanted to say that both it, it sort of accommodates a necessity, but it's also utility function that makes the real estate market more palatable in general, right? Mm. But what make, makes it so big effectively is the leverage underlying, which is guaranteed by mortgages. So if you think about it, when you don't have house cash to buy a house, you go to a bank and they just credit your bank account with the amount of money that is necessary to buy the house. That's yeah. the very definition of credit creation and leverage, right? Well, you know, supposedly you have you have certain uh, cash flows to be able to service that mortgage later on. That's the bank's task to guarantee that and to verify that. But you can access leverage in a relatively easy format when you buy houses. That makes it a very large and leveraged market. What happens to mortgage rates, therefore, Jay, is also extremely important to understand when it comes to, to house prices. In 2020 and 2021, we saw a huge acceleration in house prices. We had a combination of very, very low mortgage rates across developed markets, which were a combination of low interest rates, risk-free interest rates, but also low credit spreads. The government had thrown so much money at the economy and we had reopened having, you know, basically um, somehow figured out the, the pandemic that effectively we were able to have such an economic boom with interest rates that were extremely low. 
That was a fantastic combination to have mortgage rates very, very low, which effectively, if you think about it, they allow you to be able to afford a more expensive house. Even if your wage hasn't gone up, by the mere fact that mortgage rates are down, your mortgage installment on an average house is going to become cheaper. And therefore, you can afford a more expensive house. Now, come 2021 and 2022, after the, the Fed turn, which basically caused every other central bank to turn, you had an opposite effect. Third-year mortgage rates have gone up by an amount, Jay, that is unprecedented in such a short period of time. That has made the median payment, monthly payment uh, on a mortgage for the median US house move up by 65% over the last six months. Have salaries, US salaries moved up by nearly that? Absolutely not. In real terms, salaries have gone down after inflation. So you have US people that have a, a lower purchasing power on, on a salary adjusted, real adjusted basis, basically, but they have to face a 65% increase in monthly mortgage installments to buy the median house. So what's going to happen? Well, they can't buy the median house anymore. It's very simple. And so it always starts like that, an affordability problem, which was the same in 2006, effectively, because house prices were going through the roof and mortgage rates were slowly increasing then you start to see the volume of sales that goes down. And you are seeing that already. The third thing is that the supply comes back online because people who hoped this would be a temporary slowdown and have basically not sold their house yet will come back to the market, will try to sell. And they will try to sell their house maybe in, in a moment where market demand is not there because of what we talked about. And the last part is that prices get cut. And I think we are probably going to be seeing some slowdown in the housing market, which is not fully appreciated at all. Okay. I've got two, two uh, threads I want to pull on here. So uh, number one, for anybody who's listening, we're, we're still on this chart here. And just to break down my question a little bit, really on, on one half of the chart, we have the value of the equities market, the bond market, and global GDP, and gold. That makes up about half of the chart, roughly just over $300 trillion uh, in value. The other half of the chart, more or less, it's, it's right down the middle, is commercial real estate, agriculture, agricultural real estate, and residential real estate. What will be super interesting, Alf, to know, and if you can shed any light on this, I'd be so curious, is who owns that real estate side of the chart? If you were to break down ownership, you know, who's carrying this, uh, these assets, potential liabilities, how did, do you have any insights into that breakdown? Yeah. So I haven't had a, uh, haven't done a deep analysis into it, but um, broad strokes, um, I would say that about 70 to 80% is actually owned by um, well, people that need that house or that agricultural land or that commercial real estate for, let's say, utility purposes. Um, 20 to 30%, though, is owned by um, large investors, institutional investors. So I'm talking about asset managers, pension funds, insurance companies, banks, yeah. via securitized products. Right, BlackRock, that, et cetera. Uh, correct. And that is a very, very interesting dynamics, Jay. Why? Okay. Because I worked for one of these very large institutions in the past. And how it works is the following. When interest rates are very, very low and there is no volatility, there are no credit spreads, there is nowhere you can make money basically by buying product. It doesn't matter how, how you go uh, on the risk curve, on the duration curve. It doesn't matter how, how much risk you take. You, know, you don't get much rewards. You're going to become very creative. You are by definition going to become very creative because you the incentive scheme is skewed very wrong. People generally are paid for, in terms of, of variable compensation and bonuses for what they delivered this year. And therefore, if volatility is very low and I need to deliver returns, I will be creative. And being creative means mingling into asset classes and structures 
that are very levered up. So you will see normally when volatility is very low for too long, and there is a lot of excess liquidity in the system, you'll see a lot of these institutional actors get involved in these very you know, fancy um, structures that mostly tend to involve securitized real estate products. Mm. So we're talking about buy-to-let securitizations and all that you know, uh, weaker capital structures, basically investments. Now, what happens when the real estate market starts showing some crack is that for the first six months, 12 months, generally speaking, you are fine because of the accumulated mark-to-market, positive mark-to-markets you had maybe for a year or two, there is not much of a problem. The issue happens when these last for a little bit longer, and at the same time, your risk-free returns, potential returns go up. So if you have a treasury bond that is yielding 3%, Jay, and your risk manager starts to see that your mark-to-market on this very fancy securitized product is actually declining. And on top of that, you get evidence that the real estate market is weakening. You tend to get the equivalent of a margin call from your risk manager effectively. And, and senior management in these companies tend to be much more protective at that point. And they say, look, Alf, you can just buy a treasury bond at 3%. That's much safer than whatever you have on that book right now. Just please get rid of it. And you're asked to get rid of it exactly when nobody wants it anymore. Mm, okay. <clears throat> you know what? I thought that number would be higher, the institutional ownership. So if we're looking at our, our global real estate market that's valued at around $320 trillion, we're estimating around $100 trillion of that is owned by institutions. Uh, honestly, I thought it would have been higher. So that, that's interesting to know that, that uh, 70 to 80% is owned by some version of private ownership who's actually you know, utilizing the utility, whether living in it or operating in it. Okay, awesome. Um, last question on real estate then, just, just since we're here, you know, there's always exceptions to the rule. As you said, you know, investing is a game of probabilities, never certainties. I grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia, um, a real estate market that's probably known all over the world. And I've attended, I don't know how many, um, you know, uh, I guess like uh, candidate meetings in my town when we're approaching an election and the same conversation comes up at every single meeting and it seems to get bipartisan support. The question is, how are we going to fix the housing crisis in Vancouver? Prices are too high. It's pricing the locals out. And I look around the room and everybody's typically nodding in unison saying, yes, how are we going to fix this? How are we going to fix this? This is unreasonable. And I find myself to be the outlier every single time saying, why are you surprised? Look, <laughs> if you live in Vancouver, all you have to do is look at a window. It's beautiful here. We have the Pacific Ocean on one side, the coastal mountains on the other side. It's in a jurisdiction that you could claim is just predictable and safe lenient immigration, and it's small. Vancouver is more or less an island with water on three sides. So why would valuations not be humongous when the entire world wants to move here, right? And wants to invest here. So real estate on mass, there's been a lot of speculation, a lot of inflated price, inflated prices. But in that market, do you think you have to really get granular with the jurisdiction? And, and you know, why is this market specifically? Like right now I live in Squamish, 45 minutes north of Vancouver. I moved up here because um, my, my dollar went way further, right? And we could just buy a much nicer house with a bigger yard. But throughout the last two and a half years, people have fled the cities to towns like mine and real estate values in my town have now gone crazy, right? And so do you have to look at the little um, uh, intricacies and specific appeal to each jurisdiction? How do you, how do you approach that all? As in everything, Jay, there's always a level of um, granularity you need to apply in your analysis, right? And every real estate market has its own demand and supply dynamics and regulation is very important to 
but still it remains overall a leveraged mortgage oriented market, right? So if you move the price of leverage to very cheap or very expensive, very quickly, so also the pace of change is important. You yeah. tend to see a similar effect everywhere, but of course there are some uh, order of magnitude that you need to consider. Yeah. One example that I always bring is China. So the Chinese real estate market is the biggest asset class in the entire world. It's not the U.S. stock market. It's the Chinese real estate market. It's $55 trillion. At least it was valid at the end of last year. It's absolutely it's gigantic, right? And if you look at that, so also there, it's, it's basically been this way for Chinese people to generate wealth by avoiding, make, let's, let's say if as a Chinese guy you want to invest abroad, it's generally pretty complicated because of capital controls and other regulation. So if you have a way to actually preserve your wealth and actually increase it by investing within your, your domestic jurisdictions, you tend to do that. But you tend to do that with an increasing amount of leverage and the regulators tend to be laxer and laxer when it comes to regulation indeed to encourage this activity. So in a market where everybody tries to take the same side with a lot of leverage, generally you are more prone to accidents occurring when you tend to, you know, basically either change the regulation or make the price of leverage more expensive. Obviously there are nuances here and there and you are right, but I think overall the overarching theme remains the same. Okay. Okay. We, we can pull this chart down now so people can see your face off, but, uh, Let's stay on this China thread for a second because China has been one of the number one speculators in the Vancouver real estate market. And a question that I've been wondering with, and the question really is, is this significant or not? You know, on the heels of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we saw US confiscate freeze, a very large amount of US dollar reserve, 600 billion. We've had this conversation a handful of times about what message is this sending the world in terms of what they thought were safe haven asset classes, right? Vancouver real estate has largely been a safe haven asset class for Chinese nationals who want, who have made a bit of money and want to get it out of the country, right? Into a jurisdiction that they could claim is safe, predictable, and just. Canada has typically been a good one. You could question that recently with some of the developments over the last year. We've frozen civilians' assets. Um, I don't say we, <laughs> they were frozen. It wasn't civilians that, that made that decision, but it definitely happened without uh, any discussion among the public. And this, I think, is important to look at as part of a trajectory. I mean, maybe I'm catastrophizing here, but we tend to look at events as like static occurrences when typically they're, all, they're usually part of a trajectory of some kind. And so are you anticipating um, more deglobalization of financial assets in response to these events? What do you think? So, wow, this is such a deep question, Jay, and I like <laughs> deep questions. So the answer is to, to try and answer this question, we need to define money for a second, which is a concept that people sometimes struggle with. The money we use, you and, I, you and I and everybody who's listening to this conversation, is mostly bank deposits nowadays. So you have a digital amount of Canadian dollars or US dollars you know, that is sitting on a, on a bank account somewhere, and you can transfer it to me or to somebody else straight away, right? And then the banks in the, in the background are effectively crediting, crediting and debiting our accounts. Now, the, the problem with this form of money, and cash actually represents only 3%, 2 to 3% of the overall volume of transactions. 97 to 98% is bank deposits, right? Yeah. Now, basically, these bank deposits up until a certain amount are guaranteed by governments. So in the US or in Europe, you're guaranteed up to 250,000 or 100,000, depending from the jurisdiction where you are. If the bank goes belly up, 
that that money basically be, moves from being a liability of the bank to a liability of the government. And the government is the entity who issues the currency, issues the money in the first place, right? So you seem some, if you don't trust the issuer of the same money you're using, then you wouldn't be trusting the money in the first place. That's generally the rule of thumb. Sure. Anything above that amount, though, it's actually a liability of the bank. So if you have a million dollars deposited in a bank account and the bank goes belly up, the government is not going to make you whole for the entire $1 million, right? So you first need to understand what kind of money do you own? Whose liability is it, Jay? Is it the liability of a bank? Is it the liability of the government? Cash is a liability of the central bank in principle, but is it the liability of a government institution or of a, or of a commercial bank, right? And that explains also why a lot of this... Uh, money is actually invested in treasuries and why the US has this exorbitant privilege to be able to actually both continue issuing dollars via mostly deficits in general and have all the other side of the world actually invest in these treasuries is because the system is built on creating more money. The idea is that the more credit we push on our bank accounts, the more we can somehow feel wealthier. We can foster cyclical growth, even if you're becoming older, we're making less kids, where our productivity is not through the roof. In order to basically uh, continue boosting economic activity, we create more credit, we lever up, we increase the size of these bank deposits in the system. But these bank deposits are a form of money that is not always very safe. So if you, would you prefer, Jay, to have a million dollars deposited at a bank account with the risk they go belly up, or would you prefer buying some US treasuries, T-bills, for example, very short-term T-bills that you know they are the liability of the governments of the US. Therefore, knowing that they have a higher chance of making you whole if something goes bad. Yeah. This explains yeah. why all these countries around the world have all these US treasuries, all these dollars they own, and they want to invest in an asset where they know that the US government is able to make them whole if something goes bad. This also gives the chance to the US, though, to lever up on this system. Because, as you uh, correctly pointed out, they can somehow weaponize the U.S. dollar. Sure. Now, they can freeze assets, as actually a government can also freeze assets uh, in the form of bank deposits you can't use. That's what happened in Canada as well. So in this sort of world, you tend to see people who are looking for uh, release valves. And the release valves tend to be recognized store of values that are portable, transferable, and then can be basically outside the system. And historically, you had gold as one way to do it. Obviously, gold's portability and transferability is very much debatable. Mm -hmm. And you had Nixon, before giving up the gold standard, actually chasing people for their gold possession. And nowadays, you tend to have other forms or potential candidates for, um, for, the, for, for a form of money that can be basically outside the system. And I'm referring mostly to digital assets. At least that's one of the narratives that is surrounding this form of money. Interesting. Now... No. Okay. So I guess I want to, I want to re-ask my question then, do you anticipate, or I guess ask it differently, do you anticipate then an increasing trend of central banks, therefore to investigate other options other than US dollars? And we've seen this to a very small degree, countries like Israel divesting some USD and buying um, Canadian dollars, Australian dollars, and I believe yen. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe, and yeah, okay. So do you think this trend will, will continue? And, and does this put the US dollar as a reserve currency at risk? Or are we so far from that, 
that it's not really a valid conversation. We're extremely far from that. And the very reason is that, Jay, you yourself, who are very smart and knowledgeable, struggle to find alternatives. <laughs> uh, you, were, you were like, okay, what the hell did they buy? Uh, yeah. 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 So, and, and, and that is very that fun, actually, to experience because I tend to do this mental exercise as well. I'm like, okay, let's assume that the dollar has to decline as a reserve currency. What will be our reserve currency? A reserve currency is nothing else than a global denominator for most of our transaction. The dollar today mm. is the global denominator for any trades, invoicing, commodity prices, anything that happens basically around the world, about 70 to 80% is priced with the dollar as a denominator. You need to have certain features to be able to achieve that status, which is an exorbitant, exorbitant privilege. And now you look around and you see the Eurozone, Japan, China, am I supposed to put them in as well there? So obviously China is a problem when it comes to rule of law, democracy, capital controls, the ability to make capital flow in and out of their jurisdiction is basically extremely limited, which makes right. for this global denominator effectively not to be uh, possible. Japan, on the other end, is a very uh, special case. It's a relatively closed market from that perspective that, that doesn't actually produce enough yen to be able to export them abroad and serve as basically the United States of the world. The Eurozone could potentially be a candidate, but hey, I live in the Eurozone and we have so many fragmentation issues over here. We have one monetary policy, but we have 19 different fiscal policies. We can't make them harmonize. We, have, we don't have a banking union. We are mm. a very perfect substitute. So once again, the US dollars tend to be one, basically I think the saying is it's the cleanest of the dirty sheets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Doug Casey, did he coin that? I think it was Doug, yeah. I'm not sure. I think, yeah. I think so, yeah. <laughs> okay, awesome. Um, now I have to reference a conversation that you had with Brent Johnson. It was one piece that I watched in preparation for this interview. Exceptionally well done, by the way. People can find it probably if they just search Alfonso Piccicello, uh, Brent Johnson, and Blockworks, I imagine. Correct. Correct. And it'll pop up. It's worth a watch. Check it out. So walk me through what inning are we in, in terms of Brent's dollar milkshake theory? And maybe just in case, probably many viewers aren't familiar with the dollar milkshake theory, could you give us the high level um, synopsis and then maybe what inning, and if you believe that this is uh, still a valid theory? So basically, uh, first of all, anybody who has not checked on Brent Johnson, they should. Very nice guy, very knowledgeable person as well. And he coined the dollar milkshake term, which effectively is a fine representation of how our system is built, Jay. And the theory goes as follows. The US dollar is the reserve currency of the world. And effectively, the US has the task to make sure they export and produce enough dollars to make sure that other jurisdictions around get enough of this flow to then you know, be able to trade around and denominate as much as they can in dollar for the dollar and to they, be the global. And they need this inflow of US dollars because they need to buy commodities, energy, oil, et cetera, that are denominated in US dollar. Once you make the dollar the global denominator of 80% of everything we do, you actually are going to need some dollars. Eh? <laughs> well, that's pretty, that's pretty clear. Now, what the US does is they export these dollars away, mostly via deficits, twin deficits. That's what they do, right? So what emerging markets and other non-US jurisdictions tend to do in that case, Jay, is they understand that if they lever up in dollars, so they borrow in dollars as well, they can foster economic activity, which is denominated in dollars again, and they can again engineer stronger growth. But there is one problem with this. 
that the more they try effectively to get their hands on dollar and to create dollars outside of the US jurisdiction, outside of the US control, the moment that their, their dollar income goes down, so it means that global trade slows down, the economy slows down, or the US from their hand stops exporting all these dollars, so they don't do deficits, trade deficits, fiscal deficits, none of that. When that happens, Companies and jurisdictions who have borrowed in dollars, they do not have access to those dollars anymore. How can you repay a dollar liability if you don't have dollar cash flows coming in mm -hmm. for a reason or another, right? Yeah. And so when that happens, there is a dash for US dollars. Everybody tries to deleverage their balance sheet to get rid of their liabilities, to get their cash dollars, their hands on their cash dollars, because they really need them in that moment. And at that very moment, a system which is highly, highly leveraged in dollar that cannot get their hands on these dollars exactly when they need them tend to basically squeeze out. And it's a milkshake, again, as, as a brand would define it, that makes everybody $1 at the same time. That happens if you want to figure, because I checked last time, I think two weeks ago, there's an article on the Macro Compass about the role of the dollar that shows that there is $13 trillion of US debt which is issued by companies or countries that have no direct access to US dollars. So that they are not under US jurisdiction effectively. $13 trillion, that's a huge amount of dollar borrowing that basically needs dollar cash flow to be serviced. And when these dollars cash flows dwindle for some reason, it's a dash for dollars and it's a milkshake all of a sudden. That's roughly what we are experiencing right now. If you see the DXY, so the index of the dollar against the euro, Japanese yen and sterling and other, other major currencies, it's actually going to the moon effectively. Now, now, Brent describes the conclusion of this theory as essentially that, you know, it's, it's taken from uh, There Will Be Blood with Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, and he's in the bowling alley and he's got his, he's like, my milkshake drinks all your oil up. So he's, he's speculating that, you know, the dollar will essentially suck up the value of comparable currencies one by one and will eventually be the last to fall. Um, and when I've asked Brent, you know, what are the indicators that are going to tell you we're witnessing the final U.S. dollar rally? And he says, well, you're, it's going to take the other major currencies, including the euro, to completely fail, they'll fail first, right? You'll see smaller, more volatile currencies fail sooner. And maybe we're seeing that right now. Like, would you speculate we are watching that right now? Maybe with the Turkish Lira, uh, people would maybe say point to the yen right now, but I think maybe that's premature. What do you think? So I think you are perfectly right, Jay, that um, the damage and problems happen to the fringe first, and then they move towards the, um, the center basically okay. the kernel of all of it. And the kernel of our monetary system is credit creation and dollars. That's what it is. So the, 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 the fringes that are the most dependent on this continuous credit creation, on this continuous injection of liquidity, of this continuous dollar flows that need to you know, flow at a very high pace, those are the ones that tends to suffer the most. And you mentioned the, the most and first, and then the pain moves towards the kernel. And the kernel actually is this the one that is supposed to, to blow up last, right? So I subscribe to this interpretation from Brent, and you are seeing some of these fringes actually have a lot of problems. Um, there are 16 emerging markets right now that are falling under the category of distressed emerging markets. This is a record high over the last 12 years. And, and why? Because, exactly because the US is not 
printing any new deficits anymore. It printed quite a lot last in the last two years, $5 trillion of deficits. That's a huge amount. But then all of a sudden, the US decided to pull the plug on any new fiscal deficit creation because we had an inflation. We still have an inflation problem. So as the supply of dollars is basically all of a sudden slowing down very aggressively. And at the same time, you have energy issues, geopolitical issues, a global economy that slows down at the same time, jurisdictions and corporates that are the most exposed. So the highest, they have the highest leverage in dollar and they have the lowest amount of reserves in dollars. And mm. they are the most dependent towards global trades, a strong economy. So the most open economies, let's say from that perspective, tend to suffer the most. And right now there are 16 of these emerging car uh, counters that are basically under distressed definition, which means their credit default swap is pricing over a thousand basis point. So effectively a very high probability that there could be um, a default in one of these 16 countries. Of those 16, Alf, what are some of the larger economies that might surprise or really impact the world? So you mentioned Turkey before, which I think is, is really an interesting case. So in GDP terms, uh, purchasing power adjusted, but also in nominal GDP terms, Turkey is not small at all. And it has a lot of interconnections with Europe. So European banks are pretty exposed to Turkey. Spanish banks are very exposed, but also French banks, Dutch banks. They, they have quite a lot of business in Turkey, which means also the ramifications of a potential Turkey restructuring or default, or however you want to call it, actually, will have its reach in Europe as well. And therefore, you know how the system works is that it's very interconnected. So this knockout, knockout effect tends to reverberate. And if Turkey reverberates to Europe, there is a chance it reverberates somewhere else as well. And Turkey is a basket case because they are very indebted in dollars. They need the dollar cash flows actually uh, to service. The global economy is slowing down. Uh, their borrowing in dollars is becoming more expensive because the dollar is going up, up and up the whole time. And their solution so far has been to actually lower interest rates in Turkish lira terms. So you have inflation running at 80% year on year in Turkey, 80%. Mm. And you have interest rates at 14%. And Erdogan is refusing to increase them, which is making real savings that the inflation adjusted savings for Turkish people completely uh, you know, annihilated and Turkish people are trying to get their hands on dollars because they want something that sort of preserves their purchasing power. And so you're having all this do dollarification of the Turkish economy or an attempt of people to go to the dollar and dump the Turkish lira, which worsens the problem. And so Turkey is in, is in one heck of a situation. It could be a large market that surprises on the downside. Okay. Okay. What about Brazil? Would Brazil be near the top of that list? So good question. Um, Brazil this year has benefited from being a commodity exporter. Right. So uh, for the first six months, Jay, Brazil has had an incredible performance. One of the very few markets actually that held up okay in the first six months of the year because Brazil exports quite a lot of soybeans. It has oil as well. It has a bunch of commodities and commodity prices were going through the roof. And therefore, basically, on a terms of trade perspective, Brazil was looking pretty good from an outside point of view, right? Also, the Brazilian central bank, Jay, was pretty aggressive. They kept hiking interest rates and they said, look, we are serious. If there are inflationary pressures in Brazil, we're going to tackle them. We're not going to wait. We're just going to hike rates. So that gave investors the perspective that you had a solid central bank. Elections were still far away. And you had a country that was exporting commodities. Situation is quickly evolving the other way now because commodity prices are suffering. 
again, and we pointed it out, commodities are denominated in dollars. If dollars are increasing in value because there is a shortage of those and there's a lot of people who are levered in dollars, then commodities denominated in dollars will go down. And as commodity prices go down, also Brazil, the Brazil situation worsens, elections are coming. And you know, it is not top of that list straight away, if you ask me. Okay. But it, it is an emerging market that relies on uh, dollars in any case. So it could suffer somehow, but I don't I don't think they rank very, very high in that list. Could I ask the question in the inverse, which are there any emerging economies that you're incredibly bullish on health? I mean, there's a handful of emerging economies with some of the strongest balance sheets in the world, least amount of debt. I mean, everything the opposite, right, of what we're discussing here. Um, favorable demographics, all of this. Any markets come to mind? Well, it's right now from a cyclical perspective, that is a very, very hard question to answer. Okay. So I would, I would generally stay a little bit away on a cyclical perspective. And I mean, six to 12 months from now, I think overall emerging markets aren't looking particularly well mm. uh, on a longer term perspective. That's a different question. I think it's a very smart one. And if you are a long-term asset allocator, then I think uh, the, the Asian Pacific region is generally looking pretty, pretty good. There are some pretty decent demographic trends out there, which are not comparable. You can't find anywhere else. So I'm talking about Indonesia, I'm talking about uh, Pakistan, the entire India area, basically speaking. They have demographics that are looking extremely positive, not only for the amount of, uh, of basically birth per women effective and also the projected ones, but also because the population right now, the working population is very young. And because their productivity levels, let's say, and, and the ability for them to deliver the reform that would boost productivity as well are still there. We're talking about still emerging economies in principle, there, there could be quite some opportunities, I think, in that, uh, in, that, uh, in that region. But you need to be an investor that can keep this exposure on the book for five to 10 years and wait and monitor that actually the rule of law and the democracy in this is remain pretty high. That's very important when you invest in emerging markets. There's a good paper out that shows that emerging markets with a very strong rule of law, a very strong democracy index tend to overperform emerging markets that don't have these characteristics. And so in this jurisdiction, you can find a good combination of, of both, of demographic trends, productivity trends, and also democracy index. And I think, yeah, if you can hold them for five to 10 years, that's not too bad. Okay. Okay. I want to wrap up with a few rapid fire questions. Feel free to take a pass if you just don't have an opinion on them. No worries. Uh, time horizons one year. The question is, is price up or is price down, Alf? Let's start with gold. What do you think? One year, you said. One year. One year. So let me think. It's June 2023. Up. Up. Gold is up. Okay. Bitcoin. It's really tricky. Pass. <laughs> pass. I would take a pass on that one, too. All right. US dollars. Down. Down. Yeah. You think the rally is going to correct a little bit, just roll over a little bit. Is that your anticipation? Let, let me give you some context in the J for what I'm coming up here. So yeah. effectively, I believe that in a year from now, we are going to be at the almost last innings of a recession that has caught everybody by surprise because of magnitude and because of latitude as well of the recession. So I, okay. expect, I expect a pretty decent, decently severe recession to hit which is non-consensus at all. But if I'm right on that, then the labor market's gonna you know, roll over as well. And you're gonna see some more pain in equity markets. You're also gonna see inflation finally slowing down. And as you see that happens, effectively you will have 
the Federal Reserve that at that point will be somehow compelled into easing. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take a while. It's going to be a relatively long process. But if I'm right on the recession and the damaging effects it has also on inflation, there is a chance that the Federal Reserve will be easing. As they ease, obviously, the dollar comes down in price and anything that is denominated in dollar normally tends to go up, especially the most defensive stuff at the beginning. So gold is a great example. In that environment, gold is supposed to go up because you have an asset denominated in dollars. Dollars are depreciating as the Fed is easing, but the economy isn't looking good yet. So Mm. you want to buy assets that are still pretty defensive and good assets. So you tend to buy gold and defensive equities, for example. So the answer is gold up and dollars down. Okay. Which is as much a US dollar story as it is a gold story. I mean, so many people have hit me up recently and said, why isn't gold performing? It's flat. What's going on? This is the environment that gold should be booming in. And you know, if you, I don't know, I think if you look at it critically, you're like, it's not a gold story. It's a US dollar story. Gold's not down. It's just US dollar is way up, right? That is true. Actually, gold has been very resilient in this environment. I mean, the dollar and the real interest rates have gone up so fast that you should have expected gold dropping like a stone. And I think it has held up Mm -hmm. very, very well. Also because of the dollar weaponization story you pointed out before, the, the war premium, basically, and the the deglobalization of financial assets premium that you discussed with me before was built in, and it's probably going to remain a bit built in in the asset class. Okay, look, Al, this has been super fun. I'm really glad you could come on the show and and chat with me and get in front of my audience. I want to push people to where they can find more of you. So Twitter, newsletter, where can we find more Alf? So the more Alf, the easiest way to find more Alf is the Macro Compass. Uh, It's my free newsletter, uh, the macrocompass.substack.com. Uh, it's, I think, 75,000 people. I'm very happy with the amount of people who are reading it. Uh, and I keep, I try to deliver in depth macro analysis in there once a week with some investment ideas as well. At least I tell you what I am doing with my own savings and investments. So I tend to give perspective as well from, from that, uh, that point of view. And then on Twitter as well, I'm at, at macroalf, which is my, my handle. Um, uh, the Twitter account is lighter, of course, than the Macro Compass, so you'll find more pills here and there and some uh, some jokes as well, and also some uh, recipes when it comes to pasta and pizza. I'm Italian after all. Come, come <laughs> I'm following just for that. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And hopefully, hopefully we're going to get you to our conference in Vancouver in January. We'll, we'll chat about that, see if we can make it happen. It'd be super fun. Yes. Um, but macrocompass.substack.com, what I love about it is that Alf has skin in the game. And so if he's talking about a concept, it's one that he's actioning in his portfolio. He's not on the sidelines giving advice, right? He's just talking his book. Doesn't make him right, but it makes him honest, which I appreciate. So, Oh, Jay, this is, I, I can agree with that hundred percent. I've been in the, in the seat of investing up until seven months ago and I will be wrong. I will be wrong. It's a fact, but the, the journey, the analysis, the data-driven approach behind and sharing the insights and the applicability of these insights. It's what I strive. It's education and some investment ideas. Just, you know, um, try to deliver my best every week and see what happens. And as you said, seven months ago, up until seven months ago, you were managing a fund of about $20 billion. That's correct? That's, that's true. Yes. It was an institutional fund from um, ING Bank, which is a large Dutch bank, but also an international bank. Um, and I then decided basically to stop doing that and rather move to try to democratize a bit some financial knowledge, deliver some insights for people, educate, give my perspective out, 
and also have these nice conversations with you that now I can have. And back then with the compliance department on my back, I couldn't have. So it's, it's much nicer on this side of the, of the pond. <laughs> Love that. All right. Thanks again, Alf. We got to do this again sometime. Yeah, definitely. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Jay, for hosting me. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.